Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenakota Katoa. Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. And this is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episodes so far. This is episode number 27, recorded in September 2021, and today I talk with Dr Elizabeth Scruth. Originally an ICU nurse from Western Australia, Lizzie is the Director of Clinical Quality Programs and Director of Telecritical Care, Remote Monitoring, for Kaiser Permanente, Northern California. She has a Master's in Nursing, Master's in Public Health, and a postmasters as a cardiovascular critical care clinical nurse specialist. Her PhD explored the validity of risk prediction tools for detecting secondary cardiac events in women who experienced a myocardial infarction. She has been a director on the certification board of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses and is a member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Her professional focus is on improving outcomes for critically ill patients by redesigning workflows to ensure evidence-based practice is current. In this episode, we talk about predictive analytics and how they can save lives and improve outcomes, the EICU service and having an unbiased view of the patient, working from home and the challenges and strengths of working in a virtual team, and how the world after COVID will be very different. We still haven't figured out yet how. We also talk about work-life balance and wellness and some tips and tricks for working from home and looking after yourself. And also discuss the latest COVID surge in the United States and how tough it is for nurses and what it's like to live through it, as well as the importance of a healthy work environment. So grab a cuppa, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Dr. Elizabeth Scruth. Thank you, Lizzie. Lovely to have a chat with you today. Um, so do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? So you're a nurse by trade <laughs> um, yes. and from Australia, but living in the US. So how, have you always been a nurse? Uh, yes, I trained in Western Australia in Perth. That's my hometown. And I did work in a colony care unit and a pediatric unit upon graduation. And then within about four years, I decided I would, after visiting the US, I would like to perhaps do a year of working over there. So I applied and um, got a position at Stanford University Hospital there and went over to the US. And a year turned into many years. I've been over there about 30 years now, actually. And mainly working in the ICU side of things? Yes. So when I first came to the US, um, I went to Stanford University Hospital and then uh, worked in their uh, coronary care unit where they did heart transplants and other coronary procedures. And then went to Kaiser Permanente. It's a system that I'm currently still working in. It's uh, 21 hospitals in the Bay Area in San Francisco. So um, reaching out from San Francisco um, 
down to the South Bay area too. We have 21 hospitals in our system and they have ICUs in all the, in all of those hospitals. So I worked in their ICUs for quite a while and then went on to uh, postgraduate education and got my master's degree. I went to UCSF and did a post-master certificate for a clinical nurse specialist in critical care and cardiovascular and became a clinical nurse specialist, which is very similar to a nurse consultant in Australia. So I'm not sure how that works out in New Zealand. And then went on to get my PhD through uh, the Australian Catholic University, actually, in Melbourne. I just don't. Uh, yes, but I come back like three or four times a year. It was quite nice, actually. And then my professors actually came over to the U.S. because we had a lot of um, people in the U.S., professors in the U.S. that were also worked through the Australian Catholic University, too. So it worked out very well. And then um, worked in the ICU as a clinical nurse specialist for a few years and then worked up into senior management. So currently I'm the Northern California director for clinical quality programs like uh, sepsis and stroke, virtual pediatrics, um, uh, predictive analytics, our big data analytics department and telecritical care. So I manage that for our 21 hospitals in Northern California. Sounds like a massive role. It's a massive role, but I have a, a great team and nurses working for me. Uh, we have virtual critical care nurses. We have virtual nurses that do predictive analytics and call out hospitals when they see an alert go off in the electronic medical record. And they call the rapid response team nurse, give an SBAR to that nurse, and that nurse goes and sees the patient. So they manage all the, uh, what we call advanced alert monitor, which, so those nurses work from home, and mm -hmm. they have a critical care background and it's 24 seven. And the predictive analytic model was built into um, our medical record. We developed it in our division of research over 10 years ago. And you know, it gets recalibrated obviously as patient population changes. And um, our, my team manages that for our 21 hospitals. And so it really takes the burden off, a, off um, alarm fatigue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how big is the team? So we have 21 hospitals. We have four to five nurses working from home every shift and they work eight hour shifts and they manage probably four to five, sometimes yeah, about five hospitals each. And so it's all the patients in the medical surgical units, medical surgical telemetry units. And we're currently pilot testing one for um, a risk prediction model, early alert, alarm alert for perinatal. So, wow. we, yeah, and our division of research has, de has developed the, the predictive analytic model and we implement it. So, mm. um, and these are nurses that have worked in critical care and have decided they want to do something different or maybe they're older nurses that um, it's not feasible to work in the ICU anymore with a very fast pace. So we welcome them or they've been in management in critical care and then they transition to working from home. And we set them up with their computers and everything, and they have their phone, their, uh, their the phones that we give them, and they manage all of it. And we've seen some great results and published in um, the in JAMA last year the results of the uh, the predictive analytics model. But we've saved lives and prevented 
uh, deterioration of patients. So really it's an early warning system, but it's developed mm -hmm. for our patients through our division of research. So very specific for our patient population. Mm. And so practically, um, I guess, how does it work? You know, so a nurse is sat at home in front of her computer for eight, 10, 12 hour shift or? Yeah, so the eight hour shifts for the advanced alert monitor. And what it is, is they have a dashboard and the dashboard on the electric, because we're completely electronic medical records. Mm -hmm. And so each hospital, they, they have like four to five hospitals and they go into the hospital and they have a dashboard for that hospital and the alert shows up on a patient if it meets the threshold. So there's mm -hmm. about, mm, about 56 to 100 uh, different points that are in the algorithm and um, they're not weight-based. They're based on um, if they have a higher kind of higher threshold if it's a um, if it's not a lab value um, or it also looks at previous admissions because our patients are our patients in our system so we know their history. So if they mm. come in with diabetes or hypertension, it assigns a certain amount of points to that and then um, it looks, it's constantly looking at, so every hour it can go off the alert um, based on the threshold. And then it also gives another number so that you can call the, the uh, you can send an, a message to a social worker or the palliative care team and they can see the patient and get their goals of care and their mm -hmm. wishes addressed much sooner than before. So mm. we've been doing this for a few years now. And we've only had two nurses leave who went, who went back to a different state where their family was, but we have very few people leave. They really yeah. like the job. I have a director that manages that team and you know, they, they put their camera on, they have a camera on their computer, they put the camera on at the beginning of the shift, they check in with each other. Um, it's a very well-oiled machine, actually. Mm -hmm. um, they really like it. We've had great results, uh, really yeah. saved lives and allow people to pass the dignity instead of getting life-saving um, life strategy that they didn't want in the beginning. So really addressing their goals of care as well. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. And what's nice is all the nurses are masters prepared and they're all critical care background. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. And how do the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you need to, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how do the staff in the hospitals feel about having somebody outside um, giving them advice or, or you know, pointing out to them, I guess, if somebody um, meets a, a threshold for a warning? So we have rapid response teams in all our hospitals. Um, and they're, they're made up of nurses, registered nurses. So at the beginning, when we rolled out the program, a change is difficult for anybody. And um, when we gave the SBAR to the nurses, they're like, well, how do you know really what's going on? And we go, well, we can only see what's in the chart. So, you know, you're the expert. So really doing a lot of human-centred desi human design work in the beginning and involving patient and family committees as well, making sure mm -hmm. that they're involved in it, um, and then involving the frontline staff as well. So it took a while. Um, and then still, you know, it's it's a constant performance improvement, looking at gaps and looking at areas where we can improve our process. So we're always adjusting uh, in times of crisis, like the COVID crisis, like COVID crisis. Now the surge we're having in California, we have had to, our remote nurses have had to take on a bit more than normal um, to alleviate some of the stress that's placed on the frontline nurses as well. 
Mm-hmm. And I guess that's, um, you know, like you say, when they're so busy, um, nice to have somebody else kind of stepping into the yep. gap and, and fresh pair of eyes. And they get to know the nurses because these nurses have been doing it for four to five years now and there's been very few turnovers. So they know when they call. Um, and I've filled in on some shifts and they know my voice too. They'll go, oh, you're the director. Why are you doing it? I'm like, I'm just filling in, helping someone, you know. I said, I'm not as fast as the other one, so give me a little bit of a leeway here. <laughs> my S bar is going to be a little bit slower. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about, um, you know, because this is obviously a virtual team. Yes. There must be a few challenges um, and strengths of having a virtual team, I guess, too. So what are they, do you think? So one of the challenges is that you have to really focus on teamwork. And so we do make the team, the five nurses, say um, a day shift, for example. We, they put the camera on at the beginning of their shift. They check in with each other. They say what, what assignment they have. It's all made up um, on a, a schedule, so they already know. And then we have regular coffee chats, virtual coffee chats. We have, and before COVID, we had regular outings. We also have regular staff meetings, uh, which we make everyone put their camera on so we can see them. Um, our, the director meets with her direct reports every month. Um, and we do rounding, virtual rounding to really make sure the team is very cohesive. And then for the teams in the at the medical facilities, we do uh, virtual rounding with them as well. And then we have a collaborative call each month as well. So really basing it on uh, Institute for Health Improvements, performance improvement processes and ensuring that, you know, we're also using some Lean Six Sigma strategies mm-hmm. as well and always making sure that we're human-centered and we're really focusing on the people doing the work and that we're listening to them. And if they see some something that needs changing, we listen to them and go, well, I'm curious how we got to that and what, what could we do to make things better? So mm-hmm. you have to keep working at it. Um, but we, our team is, is very cohesive. And when a new person starts, they welcome them and, um, you know, everyone gets on and says who they are and a little bit of background so they don't feel that they're out there by themselves. Yeah. It does take a special nurse, though, because you're working from home. And so you have to make sure you have a space that's very private, um, Mm -hmm. not your kitchen table. And so (laughs) we do go out to the person's home to make sure it's all set up properly, ergonomically, and also making sure that they have a private area. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's a shift lead on for every shift that that person can call if they have any questions that they can't get their buddy to answer. Um, So there's a... There's a manager for each shift and everything. So they have someone mm-hmm. on call. And then I'm on call 24-7. So if, they, if it if it's even gets above them, they can always call me too and I'll get on. And um, that's the beauty of having an electronic medical record. They can get into every medical record for our 21 medical centers. So, yeah. yeah. That's incredible. And I think a lot of lessons there, you know, um, with people working from home during COVID times as well. Yes really important points um, in terms of how you can still manage a team and run a team of people who are working in different locations. Yes, we transitioned. So for my team and I manage uh, our stroke program manager who manages all the stroke work for our 21 medical centres and our sepsis manager and our virtual paediatrics. We have a team that's virtual paediatrics as well. Um, 
and we have some behavioral health work that's done. They, we trans transitioned them all to home at the beginning of COVID and they probably will not come back to the office. Yeah. What can we, people can be productive. We mm. run, we run productivity models to make sure that we do have the same productivity um, and look at ways where we can improve that if it's not at where we want it to be. So the world after COVID is going to be very different, even for my organization. We're not going to be back in the office five days a week. It's just, it's not, it's going to be a very different world. Um, mm. And we still haven't quite figured it out yet, but there'll be some people that won't come back to the office. They will permanently work from home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us about virtual rounding. How does that work? So virtual rounding, when the staff were in the office, I would, my, the staff that directly report to me, I would round with them every day. So I'd stop by their desk, um, ask them if there are any issues that need to be addressed immediately. Um, is there anything I can help them with? Is there anything that I need to be aware of? So I report to the vice president of patient safety, quality and regulatory services. And uh, I meet with her every week as well. And so I need to make sure there are any things that I need to escalate up. And then mm -hmm. I just ask them, you know, how are they doing? Is there anything I can do for them? Are they making sure that they have a work-life balance? Um, mm -hmm. And we're very big about wellness. And we've recognized that during COVID. And so making sure that people are engaging with some of the tools that we have on our Kaiser Permanente wellness sites, that they can get help if they need it, making sure they're exercising. And so I round with, you know, I would round with everybody every day while they're in the office, but now that they're not, I do virtual rounding. And so I'll call them at the beginning of the day and say, I'm going to round with you, you know, what would be a good time, even if it's only just five minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, so we round with them. And then our other services, our, um, our EICU. So I'm not sure for Australia. I know that Australia is thinking of doing it. I'm not sure if New Zealand has it. Um, no. So that's where cameras are in the intensive care rooms and they have a hub situated away from the hospital where they have intensivists and nurses and they work with the predictive analytics system too. And they have screens, about eight screens in front of them. And they can camera into those rooms. It's typically done at night when there's less people on service. And so mm -hmm. they camera into the rooms at night and can provide all services except for obviously putting lines in and things like that. And then they can contact the other physicians in the hospital, put those lines in. But they can address orders um, when nurses are new in the ICU, our nurses can help them with different, um, anything they might have questions about. And if they have, we have new order sets that just went out, electronic order sets that just went out. Mm -hmm. um, we can help them with that, making sure they're following the order set correctly. We look at all orders that have been put in by our physicians and make sure they're the correct um, orders that are put in. So um, we can do a lot of oversight work during the night. So I have nurses, they have about 35 patients each, 35 ICU patients, and they, do, they look at all those medical records. Uh, they look for any gaps in care. They look to make sure vent orders are correct, um, that the patient's not getting too high a peep or the, the tidal volume's not going too high. Um, so these are ICU nurses too, all masters prepared. Mm -hmm. Again, they've been they're certified in critical care and they have come from the facilities and we're implementing it throughout Northern California in our hospitals. Other hospitals have already done it. SATA, uh, which is another big, large organization, they have already done it in California. 
and then I sit on the National Telecritical Care Group with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and there's many of those organizations, hospitals within the US that already had the program in place. It sounds incredible. I mean, it's an incredible support and um, degree of oversight and security and advice, I guess, for bedside staff. Yes. Are there any sort of common themes that come through in terms of lack of care and knowledge? So some of the common themes, you know, nurses, and I can relate back to when I first started in the ICU, I was a bit hesitant to call a physician at night because I didn't want to wake them up and have them yell at me. So I would sometimes mm-hmm. wait till the morning, and that's not really good for the patient. I mean, obviously it didn't cause any immediate harm, but, you know, things could have been done a lot sooner than they were. And so this way we have a physician that's awake all night and the calls just come in and he can do, he or she can um, address all the orders and everything. They also help doing codes. They come in, they can see everything going on in a code. They can run a code. Um, and then our hospital-based physician also comes in and does other things, obviously hands-on right there in the room, but our mm-hmm. nurse and physician can be in that room at the same time too and seeing everything that's going on um, from, from a different point of view without actually yeah. being in the room. So they're a little bit, uh, by being remote, they have a bigger picture type thing of seeing things. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah just having that little bit of distance is often quite helpful, isn't it? Yes, and you have an unbiased view when you look. So they sit in front of eight screens and there's data going across those screens constantly. So all the lab work, all the vital signs, everything, which is captured like every 15 seconds on a physiological bedside monitor, they see it and they see all the waveforms. So they can Mm -hmm. sometimes see subtle changes in a waveform that the clinician Mm -hmm. at the bedside, because they're busy doing other things, can't see. So they can capture that and say, hey, you know, just notice that your arterial pressure is starting to go down and, you know, you might want to go up on the presser or something like that. So in a very nice manner, um, mm. you know, saying, you know, I'm curious why you had the presser at this rate when the order is at this other rate. Um, this has taken a long time for the bedside nurses to accept, though. And so we are doing some studies pre and post to see how, how things change from pre-implementation to post-implementation. So the nurses are also involved in research. And one of the one of the stipulations when you work for my department is in the first year you have to get published. So every nurse that starts to work, they can do a podcast somewhere. Or they uh-huh. can do um, so we partner with JBI in Adelaide, Johanna Briggs Institute, mm-hmm. and we do um cop and review summaries so they can get published in a peer-reviewed journal podcasts for the implementation uh, evidence implementation journal that they publish so we've done a lot of work with that and done a lot of publications so um our nurses get published in the first year they're hired for us as well so part of professional development mm-hmm. so going back to um i guess you know part of the success and beauty of having somebody outside the room as such yeah. um, is having that objective unbiased um, perspective and I guess also possibly because they don't know any of the personalities involved um, yeah 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 and during COVID 
we uh, a lot of institutions put all the IV pumps outside the room, everything outside mm-hmm. the room, and put extension lines on them so that the clinicians wouldn't have to keep gowning on and off. I mean, we were support of we were short of PPE. And so that was a nationwide problem during COVID last year. And so having to reuse PPE, um, it was really quite a lot for the nurses and clinicians to go through. So a lot of the pumps and the ventilator, um, the, 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 the part that shows all the waveforms and everything, that was all put outside the room. And so mm-hmm. our nurses could come into the room and see what was going on and tell the nurse and then the nurse would determine if she actually needed he or she needed to go in there at that time so it saves some unnecessary trips too you know um and they could help um their our physicians could be there when the patient was prone as well um Mm -hmm. and before calling in an anesthesiologist or the intensivist there so we provided a lot of support during the most difficult times during COVID mm-hmm. and now we're seeing the surge again, we're providing support as well. Yeah, it sounds exhausting um, in terms of a lot of information being um, looked at, processed in, you know, in your shift. Um, yeah. Are there strategies for dealing with that or sort of trying to minimize the exhaustion factor yes so you know when you're hired to work either when you're at home doing the advanced alert monitor or you're doing the the eicu tcc work telecritical care work you have to be very good with technology can't be scared Mm -hmm. of technology and you have to have excellent (laughs) communication skills because they can see you on the camera and you can talk to them but they're going to make, you're going to make sure they hear you and you're hearing them and listening to them more yeah. importantly. So having eight screens and looking at eight screens, um, we make sure that we have, we have sit-stand desks so that they stand. Um, they're not sitting all the time. We also have a little device where they can stand on it and they can go backwards and forwards like that, uh, uh-huh. side to side. So they're exercising. Um, we tell them 20 minutes at looking things and then glance away for five minutes, mm. 20 minutes, glance away for five minutes. Um, and then we have a shift lead, a clinical lead on those shifts as well. And um, he or she makes sure that the staff are taking their breaks, yeah. frequent breaks. So really being very particular about that because you want to make sure that people like their job, mm. <laughs> that they don't leave. Um, and that yeah. they also making sure they're looking after themselves too, to make sure they're sitting straight. We do ergonomic assessments, making sure that they um, are correct in front of the, the computer. So, and mm-hmm. a lot of it is on them too. They need to make sure that they're doing it correctly so they don't have back strain and things like that. So yeah. um, great. they get very quick at looking at things and we have alerts on the monitor that'll tell us when a patient's new in the ICU and bring up an icon and things like that. So they're very, they've got used to that now looking at that to streamline their work and streamline mm. their workflows. So um, it's just very hard with the COVID surge um, mm. because we're having to have patients outside that, that are ICU level outside. So we're having to have makeshift ICUs. We have tents out some of the outside the hospitals to uh, when we screen patients and bring patients in. Um, a lot of our hospitals have run out of ICU beds. 
And so yeah. that's why we're makeshift ICUs, um, PACUs, and places like that that really aren't designed for ICU, uh, you know, becoming ICU beds. And, and for the nation, we're very short of ICU beds. For places like Florida and Texas that have really a big surge, they are transporting patients on ECMO and prone into different states. So they'll call and say, we have a patient from Florida and they'll be calling Texas and saying, we have a patient, uh, we have no bed, and we believe you have a bed. Well, you need to take this patient. We're bringing out, we've got the helicopter or the plane, well, not helicopter, plane ready. But these mm -hmm. are ECMO patients, prone, transporting very sick patients to get a bed in a tertiary no. centre. No. But long distances. Long distance. So really making very good use of critical care nurse practitioners um, that are flying and mm. um, and critical care nurses, transport nurses, they're definitely they're worth their weight and go to. Of that too, you know. And during the during the COVID last year, I mean, a lot of hospitals in New York and other places, and most healthcare organizations that ran hospitals, all of them had uh, freezers outside their hospitals for makeshift morgues because they just couldn't keep up with the amount of deaths that were happening. And that's quite devastating to see freezers outside of um, hospitals. And I'm sure a lot of patients' families have some PTSD because of that. Um, you don't expect your loved one to die in the hospital, but if they do, you don't expect them to be sitting out in a freezer outside a hospital either. Yeah, every hospital had to do that because of the, mm -hmm. the amount of deaths that they were seeing and the amount of nursing home deaths and things like that. And I, I think Australia and New Zealand are very lucky because I, they will. They won't get to that stage because they're handling it very different, and really making sure that they're protecting their citizens. And while lockdowns are very annoying for people, and I appreciate that, be very thankful the government's done it because it really does save lives. And it's a few weeks or a few months out of your life, but it can save many, many lives. So uh, I, I appreciate what your government's doing to do that. Yeah. And we do too on the inside, even when we complain about not being able to get a coffee or a takeaway. <laughs> yes, we all yeah. do that too here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell us about um, being an Aussie living in California during COVID and what that's been like and what it is at the moment. So during the COVID, before we had vaccinations, before, you know, the, vaccinations were available it was very frightening it was very frightening for any nurse because you we had nurses that were taking care of COVID patients every day that's all they took care of was COVID patients in the ICU and um, some of our nurses got COVID some of our nurses died because of COVID not some I'm talking about generally you know all healthcare systems in the U.S. And it was just so the mental anguish from seeing so many deaths. Um, nurses do have a, have PTSD from it. And anyone that worked in last year, it was the year that we wish wasn't. Um, you know, you either had a friend or, or a colleague who was a nurse who just said, I, I put their hands up and go, I can't do this anymore. And we've seen a lot of nurses transition out of ICU because a lot of nurse managers and assistant managers trying to keep up with needing staff. Um, I mean, just in the US right now, uh, we're 35,000 nurses short for ICUs. And that's a pretty big number. Up. 
Yeah. No. And so last year was probably of all the years that I've lived in the U.S., including, you know, after the 911 bombing in New York. And that that was pretty devastating, too. Um, but this affected everybody. And last year was probably the most difficult year I've ever spent in the U.S., just seeing so many deaths of, of patients and families. Probably the worst was families could not visit their loved ones in the ICU. And so it was FaceTime uh, or on an iPad. And I've seen families now when they see an iPad, they can't use it. They, yeah. They're like, you know, that, you know, it's, that reminds me of when I had to say goodbye to someone and then patients having to say goodbye to their families because they were getting intubated and they knew that once they got intubated with the COVID, it was, they weren't going to come out of it. And then just seeing patients deteriorate so quickly you know, mm -hmm. one day they would be on four liters of oxygen. The next they would be intubated and their lungs looked like Swiss cheese and it was just eating away. And now we're seeing the long-term effects of COVID. It's just mm -hmm. devastating for people. They can't go back to work. They can't be productive. And so I think the after effects of it are going to be just as bad as during the year that we, you know, survive COVID. And I remember getting, personally, I remember getting my COVID in my COVID vaccination and the nurses were the first and I waited in line for three hours and I was a nurse in our healthcare organization, but the people that were vulnerable, people that needed the, the vaccination straight away. Um, and I just thought, I hope to, I, I hope this doesn't happen again because the line was way down the street and people were just, you know, they had their masks on. They didn't want to be near anybody. They didn't want to talk to anybody. Um, they just wanted to get their vaccine. Um, and it's, you know, that, that was pretty, you know, when you think about it, you're like, I've never experienced anything like this either. And now no. it's become, now it's become a way of life because we wear our masks everywhere, everywhere. Yeah. You wear it to the grocery store, you wear it to the hairdresser, you don't take it off at the hairdresser. The only time you take it off is if you're going to eat and drink. And in California, it's become a way of life. Everyone just wears a mask. And if you go somewhere and you don't, or you forget to put it on, people go, I they tell you? Yeah. Yes, they tell yeah. you. Yes. And you go, oh my goodness, you know, I forgot, you know. You yeah. take them in your car, you, it's just, you know, and then in the hospital you have to have it um and then we're doing rapid tests testing on our nurses that aren't vaccinated so they get tested three times a week uh, wow. when they come to work mm. Mm. and and uh also patients coming in for uh coming in to see their doctor or anything like that they have to get rapid tested rapid antigen tested so it's tested you can get the result within minutes um mm. so that you're not holding up people going in for their appointment we did uh, like other healthcare organizations, moved a lot to um, video visits for, to see your yeah. doctor. So, which is really people really like, and particularly for elderly people that don't want to be on the road and driving to their doctor, they can do it all by video. It's it's worked out well. There's pros and cons to it, but mm. it's worked out pretty well. And uh, we our physicians have really liked it because they can also operate from home doing it and. Mm. Um, during the COVID surge and things like that. I think now the COVID surge that's happening now is more frightening because it's the, the variants of, um, and so the Delta variant and other variants. And, you know, in all healthcare organizations, 
and in the public, you can be vaccinated and still get it. You won't get it as severe, but you can still get it. And for people that are vaccinated and they get it, it's devastating. They're like, I got vaccinated. I did all the things I was supposed to do. So, you know, you just, everyone just needs to be aware that until we get it really under control, you still have to have your mask on. You still have to wash your hands. You still have to do the six feet distancing. You can't be in large groups of people that aren't within, well, you're part of your pod type thing. Mm. Um, and then if you are, you just need to make sure you do all those things. And um, getting you know, back to basics. Yes, washing hands for 20 seconds. And last year we saw very flu, very few flu cases because of that. And so mm -hmm. it's a it's a thought, well, why shouldn't we wear masks during the flu season and make sure everyone washes their hands and then we wouldn't have deaths in the flu? So I think it's it's projecting us into what we should be doing in the future as well. Yeah, yeah. And so the cases that you're seeing coming through at the moment, are they mainly in the unvaccinated yes. population still? Yeah. 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 There's a few that have been vaccinated, but mainly or unvaccinated. That's the that's the case throughout Texas and Florida and Oklahoma and places that are seeing really big surges. They have a very, they have a much less vaccinated than here in the Bay Area. Our average is probably about seventy percent are vaccinated in most our counties. So, yeah, which is pretty good. Yes, it's very good. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and does make a difference, like you say. Yeah, it does. And so the human toll on the ICU nurses, what what would you say about that at the moment and how do we recognise um, the toll that it is taking on them? I would say that the, I don't think we've even seen the, the results of that fully yet because we're going through this surge now and we're short-staffed now. Um, we were very short-staffed last year, so we had a lot of what we call traveling nurses that we got from other states, but we were robbing other states that also needed the traveling nurses. And the nurses went to whatever state was going to be pay them the most. And I get it. That, mm. uh, you know, we'd all probably do that too if we were in that situation. Um, yeah. And so for the nurses that have been in the ICU a long time, uh, years and years, that probably were on the verge of, you know, I want to try something different or I might retire they are now pushed into that from COVID. And I've spoken to a few of them that apply for positions in my department where they can be at home. And I go, what has made, what has made you apply for this job apart from you're qualified from? And they're like, we just can't see those deaths anymore. And now, you know, during the time when the, we patients couldn't be vaccinated, it was very devastating. But now when patients come in and it could have been avoided by getting a vaccine and, before they get intubated, they wish they had the vaccine because they know the outcome. That's very sad and devastating to us too. And so a lot of nurses are, I think we're going to see a mass exodus out of the ICU by the nurses mm -hmm. because I don't think any human can go through what we went through last year, work and a nurse working in any of the ICUs, and I can speak for our institutions. And then after a year, see another surge and go, what is going on here? I, I saw all the deaths last year, I went through all that, and now we have to go through it again, and I just don't think I can. So yeah. I don't think, I think there's going to be a lot of um, mental health that's needed, strategies that are going to be needed, and treatment for nurses, um, because they, nurses typically don't talk about a lot of things, and they're going to have to get used to speaking their feelings, talk about how it was, and, you know, just even speaking to my family in Australia, like, you have no idea, you have no idea what, 
what the US went through and other countries like Italy and mm. places like that. Yes, yeah, same, not just the US, but Australia and New Zealand are very lucky. And even though they're seeing it, you know, I think the strategies that have been put in place by the respective governments of Australia and New Zealand will really protect the citizens. And we could have done it differently here in the beginning. Mm. You know, it just politics always gets in the way. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's it is the people at the bedside who suffer the most, isn't it? Yeah. And we're, you know, we were short of nurses nationwide before. We yeah. definitely are now. You know, because nurses that may have thought, well, I want to go to be a nurse practitioner or a clinical nurse specialist or or a nurse anesthetist, they're like, I'm going now. I'm going into postgraduate education now because I'm I'm done. With Walking away completely from the bedside rather than just into a different bedside. Right. Yeah. And hopefully they just take a break and come back, but I'm um, I'm not sure. Um, the ones I've spoken to are pretty beaten down. And I, I think that it was difficult for management too. It wasn't just the bedside nurses, for management to try and always try and get more nurses when there were no nurses. Yeah. Um, what do you do? <laughs> and then we had doctors trying to help too, but a doctor is not a nurse and doesn't can't do the same thing as a nurse. And so you can't just put one person into another person's position and go, oh, half at it doesn't really work yeah. so you know it's uh, yeah yeah um, I'm hoping this surge goes away pretty soon so we can all get back to some it'll be a different world it'll be a different mm-hmm. uh way of doing things it's taught us many new things it's taught us that you can work remotely and be just as productive if not more productive particularly if you have a large commute um mm-hmm. it's taught us that an ICU nurse is an ICU nurse is an ICU nurse is not true. <laughs> and that there are some things with some workflows that we can streamline to make to be make our work more effective in the ICU. Um, and that nurses are resilient, but they're resilient to a point. And once mm-hmm. you get to that point, then that resilience is broken. And nurses are very innovative. They came mm-hmm. through time and time again with innovations that you know, hopefully we'll keep on after the surge as well. Tell us about some of those and some of the sort of more positive outcomes, I guess, from what everyone's been through. Yeah, so putting um, putting the pumps and everything outside the room was one way so that the nurses could conserve PPE because we had mm. the, the nation had a shortage of PPE last year. Um, and so by doing that, they could, conserve the PPE, also protect themselves too, so they wouldn't have to go in and out of the room all the time. So um, that was one big, you know, innovation, doing it that way. Um, Innovating ways for patients' families to connect with their loved one, um, to make it less cold in terms of just an iPad or FaceTime. Um, One other innovation was, you know, you couldn't stay in the room with patients all the time, the COVID patients. But patients really missed out on the, the touch, the, the human mm. touch. And so filling a, um, just filling a plastic glove with warm water and taping it to the patient's hands so that they would think that someone was touching them. Mm. Um, so just there were very simple things. Mm. And most of them were to do with the human touch, making mm. sure that the person, the, the family and the patient knew 
that there was mm-hmm. someone there, even though they weren't in the room with them, you know. And mm-hmm. I think it, you know, how ironic that last year was the was the the year of the nurse and the mm-hmm. midwife. Yeah. And really, it was. Mm. That was perfect. I mean, it was the perfect year for it, even though it wasn't the perfect situation, but it was really, I think it really highlighted what nurses and midwives do, particularly ICU nurses, because they were at the forefront of everything. And I think it showed the world, the life, the typical day in the life of an ICU nurse and what they do for a patient. And, mm-hmm. and you know, these patients are on seven presses, they're on 10 IVs, you know, medications and they're on ECMO and they're prone and it's a lot of work for yeah. us. And <laughs> it's a lot stop. of critical thinking and making sure that, you know, everything fits into place. And I just yeah. don't think the world realised how much what an ICU nurse does each day when they look after patients. So I was glad for that. Mm-hmm. They saw. Um, you know, it was interesting. Most of what you see, you know, they'll say, oh, nurses were superheroes. And yet mm-hmm. I saw a comment by someone that said, you know, I don't want to be called a superhero. I want to be recognized as a nurse innovator, a nurse scientist, a nurse that heals with human touch, that I'm compassionate. I don't want to be a superhero. I want to be known for that because we're all that. You know, I thought that was a very interesting comment to, to hear because we think, oh, superhero, that's great, but that's not really what people want to be known for. You know, they want no, to be known for all the things they do. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the, um, I think a lot of people felt um, like we'd missed out last year because of the year of the nurse and with everything else that had gone on. But like you say, having actually have it highlighted in terms of what doesn't a nurse do, particularly um, given what's happened in ICU nurse, um, really does tell people what sort of role it is and, and all the components and facets of when you go to work each day. And, you know, it's no different three years ago than last year um, in terms of running this very complex um, scenario each day. I think it really highlighted what the American Association of Critical Care Nurses um, have always advocated for is healthy work environment Mm. and that every ICU or every you know, everywhere should have healthy work environment and really based on the the core principles of um, skilled communication, true collaboration, authentic leadership, uh, appropriate staffing in Mm -hmm. times of crisis and in in, uh, irregular times um, and meaningful recognition of of staff. And those are core principles that, you know, really all the ICU should adhere to so that Mm -hmm. nurses feel valued. And a simple thank you, you know, we had our nurse managers go around and, and they were doing it anyway, thanking the nurses every day, personally going and thanking them, not just mm-hmm. on a big group, but really making yeah. it very pos- personable and, and, you know, recognition uh, for mm-hmm. the hard work that they did. Um, because money's not everything. It's, you know, you need that, that personal touch, that personal acknowledgement from someone as well. Mm. Do you think that, you know, because... We've often felt, I guess, that ICUs can be slightly toxic um, and that there can be a lot of challenges of working in one with um, peer-to-peer communication um, and relationships. Do you think in some bizarre way that this has actually helped um, challenge some of those places and develop better work environments? I think what it did was if it was an ICU where you did not have 
good communication or teamwork, like you just mentioned, it really highlighted that. But on the other hand, if you had excellent teamwork in an ICU, it highlighted that too. So I thought I think mm-hmm. it brought out both of them. And a couple mm-hmm. of our facilities um, are recognized. Um, we have a Beacon Award that's through the American Association of Care Nurses, and it in it's the application that an ICU can make. And it's a very detailed application and it points to all the things I just said about healthy work environments, but our nurses also certified. Does the nurse management in that team in that ICU really advocate for the the nurses and do the physicians and do you have um, no hierarchy in your ICU as well? And so we have a couple of ICUs that have that. And during COVID, they really shined. They really shined because they already had that in place. So putting mm-hmm. a stressor on top of it, it just made them much even more cohesive together mm-hmm. and making sure they looked after each other. And, um, you know, people, when during our lockdown in the middle of our COVID and everything, uh, people's children couldn't go to school. The schools were all shut. Mm-hmm. And so nurses had to take care of their, their, their children at home. They couldn't yeah. come to work. Some couldn't come to work or they had to have in their community they strategize where one person could stay with the kids for the day and then the next day be someone else. And it, that was very stressful too because mm. they couldn't, the kids couldn't go to school. And then just the whole, you know, kids doing Zoom classes for a whole year, that has effect yep. on them too because they're not with their yeah, mm. socialized as well. Yeah. yeah. So how do we best look after ourselves, I guess? I would say, and I tell the nurses that I work with, is always think that, yes, the patients, when you're at work, you look after your patients and you do everything that you can, but ask for help if you need help. Um, Acknowledge that you cannot do everything Mm. and you can't be perfect. What you're really striving for is sustainability sustainability that you can do most things every day but you cannot be perfect because you will tie yourself out and it's not good for you for your overall health and it's not good for for units so take a step back um think before you speak uh maybe you know five seconds because our emotions sometimes our emotions speak for us and not what's logic in our head and when you go home completely decompress so i i know nurses that installed showers in their garages and they took everything off when they went home in their garage, had a shower and everything and would not go in their house with anything that was in that, that was taken to their ICU, their bags stay in the garage. They decompressed in their shower in their garage um, for like 10 or 15 minutes and then walked into the house so that when they walked into the house, they were there for their family and their family was there for them, but they had left the ICU behind and a lot of nurses said they had to do that. A lot of nurses stayed in hotels. They didn't go back to their families and hotels gave free rooms for nurses and um, first line, first line responders. Um, or they stayed in a hotel while they're working and they just would not go home because you want to expose their, their family to COVID. So mm. they were looking out to their family. And then when they went home for their days off, they had to really decompress and really try to leave that behind. And when you went back to the hospital, if you needed help from our counselors to ask for that. So just to really be aware of your own mental health and it's okay to talk about it. It's okay to say, I can't do this today. 
I, mm. I need a break. So really, yeah. I think that would most that would help most people get through it. Most nurses, frontline mm. workers. And while we're sitting here talking, you've got the most gorgeous background of um, Perth. <laughs> yes, yes, Kings Park. Guess, yes. Yeah, I mean, it just looks stunning. So, I mean, that must be a huge tension for you because you can't get home at the moment. No. 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 No, so I've been trying to get home to Western Australia for the past few months and uh, it's on lockdown. The border is closed and they've limited, severely limited the amount of international flights going in and people. Uh, it's like 250 a week or something like that. Um, and while it's frustrating because my mother is elderly, I'd like to see her and I have <clears throat> all my family back home. Um, I totally understand what the government is doing. So I'm not angry at the government. I'm like, I'm a little frustrated. I can't get home. But yeah. I would never want to put Australia into the same situation as the US, what we went through, because I, and this is just my personal opinion, the hospitals would never get a cope. You don't have the amount of ICU beds that we have here. I mean, in our system, we have 500 ICU beds just in our Bay Area, just our system. Mm. So, and there's, there's tons of other systems. So we have thousands of ICU beds. Australia doesn't. So what do you do if you had a mass problem like we had? Mm. And you're getting patients, you're getting people vaccinated a lot quicker. So I think that it's doing the right thing, even though I know it's frustrating for the Australian people. I, I totally understand it. I, mm. I'm, not, I'm not against what they're doing, you know. Mm. And this too shall pass, you know. Yeah. Yeah, short-term pain, long-term gain. Yes, short-term pain, long-term gain. A bit like exercise. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Although, I mean, you know, going into it, what, 18 months or so ago, we kind of thought it would be a little bit shorter than it has been. And I guess that's one of the um, things that challenges everyone is knowing when it finally will end or, you know, reduce. So it does seem to have gone on. We need more people time. vaccinated. Yeah, you need to get vaccinated and... And then not blame the people that don't get vaccinated if they have a true exemption or understand why they don't want to get vaccinated mm. and maybe speaking to them on a different level. Um, so stay in the conversation out with, I'm curious why you would not, what, what do you think the vaccine will do to you? Because the blame game will not get anywhere. And we need to be respectful of people's feelings too. We're nurses. So I always start that conversation out. I'm curious why would you think that way? And try mm. and get down to the really the nitty gritty of why they don't want the vaccine and yeah. then try to encourage them to get it. So, you know, speaking up, being a voice yeah. for, for people as well. Yeah, again, that's part of our role, isn't it, as advocates and, um, you know, like you say, trying to understand where someone is coming from yes. is often the, the first starting point. Um, and who knows, having that conversation with them might just be the tipping point as well. And yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thank you, Lizzie. This has been a very free ranging conversation. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's been and a pleasure. Though, thank you. Lovely to hear about, um, you know, A, the telecritical care side of it, which is just something completely outside our spectrum. I mean, we don't, in New Zealand, we don't even have um, electronic medical records. So I'm not oh, sure how we'd go trying to do that. <laughs> We're is all it coming now? Paper-based. Oh, it's been coming for a while. Um, mm. But, yeah, yeah, for a country of 4 million people, we haven't quite been able to agree on one system, surprisingly. So, um, yeah, so I'm sure it will come one day. Yeah, yeah.
I will thank you and take good care. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. What a great chat with Lizzie. I cannot even begin to understand what it is like to live through this. Her final messages to me were hugely important. Strive for sustainability and take a step back. Ask for help. Acknowledge that you can't do everything, that you cannot be perfect, and think before you speak, and decompress when you go home. Leave the ICU behind you when you go home. Be aware of your own mental health and seek help if you need it. Wise words. Take good care, everyone. And thank you for joining us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.